Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729 to 811. Select styles. Excludes in-store Clearance. The Starlight Lounge presents an evening with the progressive box. The moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi oh! This next one's for you too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the NBA Podcast. We have a great episode for you today. We're going to be recapping the first week of playoff action and discuss what adjustments we'd like to see. Uh, I'm Brian Zaporic, and just before we get underway, I want to remind you all that you can follow us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. In our bio, you can find all three of our Twitter handles, so be sure to give us a follow there as well. You can also find us on iTunes, so we'd love it if you subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews, preferably every time Morton goes on a rant about the Bulls. Uh, And then you can find us this year on FanRag Sports, so check them out on Twitter, at FanRag Sports, and for their NBA content, at FanRagNBA. Had a lot of great playoff content about every series. It's going to keep coming over the next few weeks, so check them out, FanRag Sports. With all that said, as always, I'm joined by Morton Jensen and Sarah Chalea. How's it going, you two? It's going well, Brian. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Pretty good. Good to hear. Both of your teams are doing well in the playoffs, surprisingly, for one of you. So we'll, we'll touch on that. I have no idea what you're talking about, though. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, and we're also joined by a special guest today, Bobby Corella of Mavs.com. Bobby, how's it going? Pretty good, Brian. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Thanks for joining us. So we're, we're going to talk playoffs first, then we're going to talk. Uh, we, we have some overdue postmortems for the few lottery teams that we haven't touched on yet. So we'll get to that as well. So let's start with the biggest surprise of the playoffs so far. The Boston Celtics, the number one seed that claimed to be disrespected, well, the Chicago Bulls have disrespected them. The Bulls are up 2-0 in that series. Uh, there was some news. We're recording this on Friday. It, news came out today that Rajon Rondo has a fractured thumb. He's out for the next 7 to 10 days. Probably done for the series, as best we can tell. So, more the first question i got to ask you is, are these your Bulls again? No. Nope. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Just I saw the I saw the email outline you put up, Brian. I was furious. Yeah. No, they are not. Okay, I, I would be a huge hypocrite. Uh, I, I you know a lot of my former Bulls brethren are you know all in on the current Bulls, like with the hashtag C Red and everything, and it's it's a <laughs> bit weird to me because this is only gonna solidify what 
Gar Foreman did. So apparently mm-hmm. they don't want change. Yeah, that's right, Bulls fans. I said it. I'm, I'm <laughs> change they can't here. believe in. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, the, the biggest problem that we predicted in our playoff preview was the rebounding margin. We figured that would be the one place that the Bulls might have an advantage. And especially in the first game, that held true. But even in game two, I think it was like six minutes in, every single Bulls starter had an offensive rebound. You know, the, the rebounding margin at the end wasn't huge, but there was just a clear advantage. Uh, the Bulls are just out-muscling the Celtics on the glass. So, Sarah, what do you think the Celtics can do to fix that? Well, I saw that you suggested maybe a little more Kelly Olenek for height. Also, he could probably break Rollo's arm pretty quickly. So <laughs> they might be right back in it after that. Did you guys see the picture, though, where he, he did the double arm lock again? Yeah. Again? Yeah. Yes. Oh, to boy. Lopez. Yeah, he had oh. his one arm with both of his. Uh, there's just no reason why you ever need to do that. That's nowhere near legal. <laughs> uh, and as someone like that was one of my issues, actually, when I played, I have multi-directional instability in my right shoulder. So like if mm-hmm. I just got bumped while I was rebounding, it would slip out of place. Oh, so I can't boy. even imagine like if you if you did that to me. My arm would just hang there while I chase you around trying to beat you with my left hand. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so. I'd pay money to see that, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, so dislocate the opponent's arm is your best yeah, strategy. Yeah, okay. I don't see how they're going to help themselves rebounding-wise otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bobby, are there any tweaks to the ro- rotation that you'd like to see Brad Stevens make in advance of Game 3? Well, I was looking up and down per game minutes that these guys have played. And Amir Johnson's played, what, like 12 minutes per game so far? Mm-hmm. Is that right? And he's averaging 0.5 defensive rebounds per game. So he's <laughs> got right. – he has one defensive rebound in like 20, 25 minutes. So if he's out there for size and defense, but he's not contributing on that end of the floor, then the question is, well, do you just want to say, you know, forget about the glass, forget about defense, let's just try and get some spacing. So do you put your repco in the lineup – do you give Olenek more minutes, like Sarah had said? You know, you've got to try something. Plav is all about adjustments. It's all about you know being inventive, being creative, give your team a chance. And Brad Stevens strikes me as the kind of guy that is willing to take a risk and mm-hmm. think outside the box. And maybe the answer for the Celtics is to go so far against their weakness and mm-hmm. just like surrender the boards and try and just create some offense the other way. I mean that that is. One way of doing things, if you miss your shots, you're going to lose, but they haven't had any success anyway. So, I mean, at this point, you might as well try something crazy. Right. Yeah. Kind of like how Houston, you know, with their their strategy at the trade deadline was like, well, we're not going to win on defense. So let's trade for Lou Williams. We're just going to score 30 points a game. Let's just get ridiculous, you know. Right. Yeah. Let's let's try it. I don't see why not. You know, you see, especially in game two, like they got down 15 points and then they just started trying all these hero ball threes, especially like Jay Crowder and Avery Bradley. Neither guy is, you know, a knockdown three-point shooter. So yeah, Olenek played really well in game two. I think that's definitely an adjustment. I, you know, Brad Stevens, I think you're right, Bobby. He's a smart coach. He's going to he's gonna change something, uh, you know, because if they lose game three, they're not coming back from that. So more final question about the Bulls. Rondo is now out. How do you think Jerry and Grant's going to fare as the starting point guard? Well, he's very inconsistent, but he has every physical tool to be a good defender. It's just a question of why he is that consistent. Um, he's athletic. He's 6'4", so he's got great size. 
and he's improved his jump shot as well, so he isn't a liability on the other other end. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope that he actually steps up a little bit more because he, he does seem like a guy who was jerked around a whole lot in, in Fred Hoiberg's system this year, which I think is kind of unfair. Uh, Rondo at oftentimes got you know uh, minutes out of reputation instead of what he was actually providing, and, and Grant on several occasions just outplayed him. So seeing him get extended run is is going to be intriguing for the Bulls. By the way, while I have the word here, let's get ridiculous is probably the best slogan ever. If if you're like Boston, like they should come <laughs> yeah. out with T-shirts for the warmups. It's just let's get ridiculous. That would be perfect. Yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, so we'll we'll see what happens in Game Three tonight. We should also mention condolences to Isaiah Thomas. Uh, we recorded last week, uh, last Friday, so the day after. You know his his 22 year old sister uh, passed away and in a car accident. So obviously that is a factor as well. You know we don't know he you know they showed game one they showed him on the bench crying beforehand. So our thoughts and prayers to the Isaiah and his family. Obviously it's a something bigger than basketball right now. So it, it's basically the nice way of saying be nice to Celtics fans if they do end up losing this series. Um, let's move on to the Cavs Pacers. Not as much of a surprise this time. The Cavs are up 3-0. The big surprise was Game 3 on Thursday night. The Pacers jumped out to a 26-point lead. Seemed like they would at least have a fighting chance. Then LeBron James happened. 41 points, 13 rebounds, 12 assists. Led a furious comeback with both Kyrie and Kevin Love on the bench. Uh, Sarah, do you think there's any chance this series isn't a sweep after Indiana choked so hard in Game 3? It feels like a very minuscule chance, that's for sure. Uh, it, that's got to be hard to come back from that. I'd like to see them so, show some mental fortitude and and really put up at least a good fight in the in this final game. But yeah, I don't see I don't see them pulling it out. They they had two really close ones. That is worth stating that you know they had two chances to to steal one so far, but has not happened yet. So the, the odds are against them. Yeah, I, I didn't see Paul George's press conference after Game 3, but as far as I know, he didn't throw anyone under the bus last night, so that's wow. progress, right? <laughs> that is progress. Uh, Bobby, what what do you think's gone wrong for Indiana in this series? Man, I don't know if it's anything that's going wrong with Indiana. I just think that LeBron is still really, 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 really good. <laughs> You're watching Cleveland play, like, he's got him and four shooting guards, basically, and they're just running, like, Four two pick and rolls and three one pick and rolls and like five three pick and rolls. Just like LeBron is just so ridiculous. And Indy, they're just personnel. You got Jeff Teague and Monte are the backcourt and they're right. both small and they're they struggle to contain guys on the perimeter. And when you have Kyrie as your best one on one guy, you know, that's just a really bad matchup. And and Indy's roster construction is just not they're not really built to beat Cleveland. I don't think many teams are built to beat Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And um I mean, you see this a lot in two seven matchups. I don't think there's really any one thing that's gone wrong for for Indy. I just think Cleveland is super super good on offense, and I think LeBron and Kyrie are kind of the the guys at the driving uh, at the driving steering wheel. Yeah, I mean, game one it seemed like you know the as you were saying, speaking to the, the roster construction, they were switching Jeff Teague onto LeBron a lot, and obviously LeBron took advantage every time. So they 
you know, they, Nate McMillan ahead of game three switched CJ Miles into the starting lineup ahead of Monte, which seemed to work for at least a half. But then, as you said, LeBron happened. And, you know, I feel like this happens every year. Like, we, we go through the regular season and we fall in love with all these other guys. Like, this year was James Harden and Russ and Kawhi. And then the playoffs start. It's like, oh, yeah, no, LeBron's still the best player on the planet. Okay. Yeah, you forget about Bron. I mean, he's the guy that we wish Harden and Westbrook would be. He's just, like, perfect at everything. Right. Yeah, it's it's but, unreal. I mean, there's um, no adjustment that you can make to, to beat him. I mean, he's just he's really really good. Right. You hope he misses free throws. That's about it. <laughs> uh, more, I you know that it, I think it's safe to say Cat, Cleveland is going to win this series. Um, should the Cavs fans be worried about their defense moving forward? Well, yeah, because it still hasn't been good. I mean, <laughs> Indiana on several occasions really you know dug into him. Lance Stevenson in game one just really brought the heat on them and, and dri- dribbled himself right into wide open jump shots. That That's just not a good game plan. And the fact that they allowed Indiana to get a 26-point lead in the first place doesn't really uh, speak much to their defensive intensity, I suppose. Right. But, you know, as, as Bobby touched on, LeBron is LeBron and the Cavs are just so ridiculously talented offensively. And... If, if they just go with the Houston mentality of just outscoring everyone else, I mean, that is still the name of the game. They can go pretty far. But having said that, I am still extremely concerned about their defense. Uh, what did I have them as? In, as winning in five or six? I had them pretty far down. I remember you guys had them in five, and I was like, I think six. But I'm yeah, I think I had six, six, too. Yeah. So yeah. that's... that's uh, that's definitely one that's not going to live up to it. But I'm also I'm also thinking right now, like as of this very moment that we're sitting here speaking, do you think Paul George is at home on NBA.com looking how his his name is going to look on the back of the jersey of the Lakers jersey? Yeah, I mean, right. He's, got, he's probably sitting there, like, oh, create your own jersey, George, thirteen. Oh, <laughs> damn, I can't choose thirteen. Retired. Yeah, and he's going to look through it. I mean, he's gone, right? There's yeah. no chance in hell he's he's coming back next year. Yeah, we'll we'll have a official post mortem for the Pacers, which is basically discussing how Paul George is going to force his way out of Indiana. But yeah, it's it's not looking good for his long term future there. I mean, on the defense note, I, you know, it's a big concern against the Warriors because the Warriors look great, but like the Cavs' road to the finals suddenly is starting to look a little softer, especially if Boston goes down to the Bulls, and then the matchup we'll talk about next, you know two of their top threats are in danger in the first round. So it's still an issue, but who knows? You know, it might not come back to bite him for at least another month. Uh, worth noting before we move on as well, if the Cavs win game four, LeBron is going to set the NBA record for the most consecutive first round wins with 21. At, on his career, he is 47-7 and seven in the first round. So <laughs> he good. there's that. <laughs> he's he's, he's a, okay, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, as mentioned... So, you know, Boston was their big threat. Toronto, more, you and I picked Toronto to make the finals in our hot take section Stop last lying. week. Stop lying. Uh, <laughs> Check the tapes, I never everyone. Said that. I, I said Milwaukee. You just photoshopped it. <laughs> yeah. Audio photoshopped it. No, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we did. And um, I am horribly embarrassed that we did. Yeah, it wasn't a good pick, was it? <laughs> nope, it wasn't. And, you know, here's the thing, though. We just took Giannis Antetokounmpo for granted. Yeah, we sure did. Do you do you think you know they're they're 
Bucks are up 2-1. They just completely annihilated the Raptors in game three. I think the score at one point was like 52-21. to uh, Do you think the Raptors have a chance to get back into this one? I, I want to say yes, and I suppose on some level I can't deny that there is a chance, but I, I don't think it's a great one. Like, think about mm-hmm. it. DeMar DeRozan didn't have a made field goal yeah. in game three. Like, that's ridiculous when you look at it. And this is the Raptors' M.O., which is really unfortunate. I, look, I don't think they did anything wrong with their trade uh, deadline acquisitions. I think they did everything yeah. right. They needed to get an upgrade. They needed to get a guy they could sign for a long term, and that is Ibaka because, you know, when the, you have him on contract, you have his bird rights, and you can re-sign him, you can re-sign Kyle Lowry it, it made sense, so at no point am I sitting there like a lot of people on Twitter are right now saying, oh what the hell did they do, no, I like their plan, but what we did not take into account is the fact that they continue to absolutely suck in, in the playoffs, like they can't mm-hmm. make open jump shots, they can't, you, you <laughs> can't make forced jump shots when they take them, which they do a lot and it just seems like they are a completely different team and this yeah. is what the third year in a row. Yeah, well, I think they've lost the their game one is something like six straight game ones that they've dropped now. Yeah, I mean, I I know they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals and whatnot, but it wasn't great. You know, I mean, their mm-hmm. percentages were just horrid, and I'm not sure that scrappiness is going to get them by this year, especially against the Bucks, who have you know arms for days. So, yeah. Well- on the trade deadline note, I mean, without trading for Tucker and Ibaka, they're down 3-0 in this series. Because yeah. Ibaka, mm-hmm. you know, Ibaka saved them in game two. Uh, you know, I think, as you mentioned more, DeMar did not have a made field goal in game three. Kyle Lowry struggled badly in game one, got going more so in game two, then right back to the gutter in game three. Sarah, he's the head of the snake. How did they get him going? It's going to be tough, <laughs> but they, they're going to have to try. So some more pick and roll, some more try him off ball a little bit, whatever you can do, pin downs, something. But yeah, the, as a whole, what they have to stop doing is this, of course, that's basically their MO all year, but this ISO based, mm-hmm. you know, standstill stuff, because, you know, I'm really glad, by the way, that I didn't jump on the bandwagon with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, smart. But I think I still had Raptors at five, which I should have learned from last year. Because I remember on this very podcast, you said, how do you think DeMar's going to do? Uh, most of his points come from free throws. And I was like, oh, he'll be fine. And yeah, <laughs> that wasn't the case. So. Um, but yeah, what I what I think we didn't think about was the fact that that style of offense really plays into leading to uh, Milwaukee transition. You know, those guys are just flying down the floor and they can't stop them. And even in the half court, I think they're doing like a pick and roll, slip pick, and freaking Valanciunas is spinning everywhere. <laughs> Greg Monroe's getting whatever he wants. Thon Maker's getting whatever he wants. Giannis. So they got to figure out something defensively and offensively. But stop taking these long threes that lead to these long rebounds that Giannis, you can't stop. So. Yeah. No, that's yeah. three dribbles and a, and a dunk. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, as he, I mean, if you follow NBA on Twitter, like I feel like every time there's a Bucks game on, there's at least five highlights of Giannis during every one of these games. But Sarah, I think you're spot on in terms of the isolation offense. I mean, 
the ball moved a little bit better in game two, and that's where, you know, it was still a close game. It's not like the Raptors blew them out, but that they squeaked out a win because the ball was popping. But, yeah, when they go to these ISO, you know, just dribble, 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 shoot, it's awful. And you're right, it plays right into Giannis's hands. So, Bobby, I think that's the question. You know, Giannis, Middleton, and Monroe have all been beasts in this series. What do you think? Can the Bucks slow those guys down? Do they have the personnel to do it? Well, I mean, can you slow Giannis down is a tough question. Can anyone slow Giannis down? He's like a seven-foot point guard. He's baby Braun out there. As, I mean, as far as Chris Middleton, man, they've been such a good team since he came back. Mm. He just totally changed everything that they do because he's a guy that you can dump the ball down low to. He can catch and shoot. He can run off screens. I mean, he's everything that you would want in a player who is complimenting on Teddy Kumbo because Giannis is kind of this – ball control guy who's not much of a catch-and-shoot guy. Middleton is the complete opposite. So if you can get mismatches on one of them, then you're going to be pretty good offensively. You're going to be in good shape. As far as Monroe, I know he's taken a bunch of crap his whole career, but is he not like the ideal backup big man? I mean, it's him and Ennis Cantor, I think, are like two guys who can come off the bench. And, and Cantor we'll talk about, I guess, in a little bit for OKC. He's a little – Monroe's a little better defensively than Cantor is, I think. Monroe just cooks guys. I mean, he just cooks them in the post. And it's – as a guy who grew up watching 90s basketball, like it just brings a kind of a twinkle to my eye watching him out there <laughs> just doing stuff around the basket that nobody else does anymore. Yeah. And, and it's just a really – it's a really tough matchup for Toronto's bigs. I mean, Jonas obviously uh, – Valanciunas is a really big guy. Ibaka is a really big guy. But then once they go to the bench, they're not really bringing much size, much much muscle off the bench. And, and Monroe can kind of go to work and all the Bucks can go to work. And – I mean, it's just – it's really tough to slow that guy down. I remember a couple of years ago when the Mavs had Amare. I mean, he wasn't doing much on defense, but offensively – I mean, backup big men just cannot guard big men who are skilled around the basket. It's a really tough thing for them to do. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Monroe just – he does it to starters too, but, I mean, he especially cooks benches. It's just been really impressive to watch him kind of, like, reinvent himself as a, as a third big. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm always going to be a Greg Monroe homer because he went to Georgetown, but – yeah, he has been a monster in this series. You know, it seems like Dwayne Casey put uh, Valanciunas on the bench to start the second half of Game 3. So that maybe is the adjustment he's going to go for in Game 4. Maybe he goes small to start and then saves Valanciunas for Monroe's minutes and try to line them up a little bit better. But it really feels like, I mean... I, I, I'm not more. I'm with you. I'm not confident that the Raptors get out of this round either. It's we really did underrate just the personnel mismatches that the Bucks present for the Raptors. So unless, you know, unless maybe PJ Tucker moves into the starting lineup, you put Ibaka at the five, and you hopefully slow two of those guys down, and then you have Jonas against Monroe, and maybe that presents him a little more trouble, but. Even if the Raptors survive this series, it's going to be—it's not going to be a blowout. It's going to be tooth and nail. Probably goes to seven games. Right. It's still putting lipstick on a pig. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way of describing the Raptors in the playoffs, just permanently. Let's re- <laughs> let's remember this for next year. By the way. Uh, all right. Let's move on to the Wizards Hawks. The Wizards are up two zero in the series. Both of the games have been relatively close. I mean, you know, seven points game one, eight points game two. Uh, After the first game, 
the Hawks took umbrage with the Wizards and said they were playing MMA instead of basketball. Uh, but the real story, as we figured last week in our preview, we said, you know, the Hawks will probably have the advantage in the front court. The Wizards are going to in the back court. So John Wall and Bradley Beal, 54 points in game one, 63 in game two. Sarah, what do you think the Hawks can do to counter those two guys? <laughs> I really don't know. I, I don't think they have the guys to go back at them, really. I've never been a big shooter fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think more minutes for Hardaway is not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But man, those guys are going off. Uh, Wall has been incredible. He's been really fun to watch, I think. He somewhat reminds me of younger, faster Tony Parker, <laughs> which Ooh. is it's kind of wow. hurting hurting my heart a little bit. <laughs> uh, very reminiscent of the good old days, but yeah, they've looked incredible. And the thing that stuck out the most to me is how how much they make everything personal. Like Markeith mm-hmm. Morris, especially, <laughs> and you could tell from game one, like he is out there to just completely punk Paul Millsap in every way he possibly can. <laughs> He wants to make it personal. And I guess the Hawks just haven't quite matched that physicality yet, among yeah. other things. It's not just right. physicality, but, yeah, I mean, they've taken it to him. Yeah. It seems weird to me that uh, Cephalosha DNP in game one, four minutes in game two. If that's, you know, if you're looking for a guy, you know, he's not going to provide much on offense. But if you're looking for a guy to maybe slow down Beal... Feels like that might be an adjustment to look for in game three. More Sarah mentioned Markeith is trying to punk uh, Paul Millsap. Marcin Gortat, who you know had a pretty rough end to the, ser- the, the regular season, has punked Dwight Howard in this one as well. So what do you think the Hawks do in the front court to get that advantage back in their favor? Yeah, Gortat right now is basically trying to punish Dwight for being his backup that many years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I honestly don't know. Dwight, Dwight looks stiff, uninterested, not really that aggressive. And we've touched on Dwight quite a few times uh, on this podcast. And, and the sentiment here has been he should get more shots. He should be more involved, which I, I kind of still feel is true. And I wonder if that's one of the issues right now, that the fact that he isn't involved offensively just makes him disinterested defensively and just not giving mm. a damn because he doesn't give a damn right now. And with that mm-hmm. price tag, you can't really, I mean, that's that's pretty low. Uh, but but I also feel he's being slightly mismanaged. But having said that, I, don't, I think that trend is going to continue. I don't think he's going to step up anytime soon. It's, it's all on Millsap to really do that. And it seems like he's doing what he can. But the offense mm-hmm. goes through the, the, the backcourt, really. Like, I was looking at the shot attempts. Like, Schroeder has taken yeah. 37 shots this series, which is... 15 yeah. more than Millsap. You have Tim Hardaway who's spurred with 25. Like the balance of the team is just all out of whack. Then I started looking at Washington and I kind of maybe found out why. They are averaging 10 blocks a game initially and nine steals. Mm-hmm. Like that is a ridiculous amount. So it might be mental at this point. Like Atlanta might be slightly afraid of going down low. They might just settle for the long range shot, which they're not that great at. So to your question, I don't think they're going to make any major uh, corrections to, to their offense because I don't think there's any to make. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a really good point about, I, yeah, I know the Schroeder too, you know, he should never, as Sarah said, you know, <laughs> he should not be leading the team in shot attempts. And it, I feel like in game two, especially uh, early on in that game, I want to say within the first minute or two, he had a nice little pick and roll with Dwight, fed Dwight for an easy basket. And then what? That's one of Dwight's three baskets that game. Yeah. Like it's that, that play is there. So you know, I don't know why Schroeder's taking 21 shots. Dwight's only taking five. That seems like a concern. Uh, Bobby, if you were Coach Bud, what would you tweak going into game three to make this a series? Well, if I was Coach Bud, I would be very concerned with the amount of turnovers that they've committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hawks had 21 in game one, 25 fast break points. Washington in game two, they committed 18 turnovers for 16 fast break points. And if you turn it into a track meet, you're going to lose against the Wizards. I mean, Wall is too fast. In game one, they were plus nine fast break points. They lost by seven. Or they Washington won by seven, I'm sorry. And then in uh, game two, they were like plus eight, plus nine. And they won by, what, seven or eight again. So, I mean, that's the difference. You've got to make it a half-court game. And uh, Schroeder came out today and basically said that what they've been doing, what the Wizards have been doing is like coaxing him in, goading him into taking these shots by – playing passing lanes, they think Schroeder's a guy that wants to pass the ball to shooters. They're giving up the pass to the big man rolling. So I think the the adjustment, I mean, their self-proclaimed adjustment is probably to try and get Dwight more involved on the roll or Millsap involved on the roll or whoever is going to the basket, find that guy. Because if you're slinging it around the perimeter and guys like Wall and Porter are jumping the passing lane, I mean, you are just, you're dead in the fast court. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one can slow down the Wizards. So You've got to get shots at the rim, and you've got to make those shots at the rim whenever you get there. Can't be missing a layup and you know finishing the play out of bounds because you're never going to get back in time. You've got to space the floor, and you've got to you've got to run some rolls and uh, and finish some shots at the rim. There we go, Hawks fans. We just gave you hope for Game Three. So <laughs> let's let's turn our attention now to the Western Conference. I don't think we need to talk much about Warriors Blazers as expected. Without Nurkic, the Blazers have no chance in this series. You know, Dame and CJ went off in game one. They still lost by 13. Kevin Durant sat out game two with the calf strain. The Blazers got rolled. Dame and CJ did not have a good game. No one stepped up in their absence. So, Mort, you were, we were talking about this briefly before we started. Do you think the Warriors should rest KD until Portland wins a game or if Portland wins a game? I just think they should rest him until the second round begins because they are absolutely going to win this series. Even if they take one loss, I wouldn't panic at all. I would just rest KD until he's he's healthy and then you can get some fresh legs in for the second round and kind of rest Curry and Clay and Dre a little bit. Makes sense because right now Portland doesn't offer anything uh, as a, in terms of being a threat. Uh, it's mm-hmm. It's overpowering, really. Yeah, and Nurkic, we should mention, he's been, he's been upgraded to doubtful for Game 3, so he is most likely not playing. Uh, Durant did practice Friday. Sounds like he's hopeful to play Saturday, so this may be moot, but Mort, I'm right with you. I don't think there's any reason to risk it. You know, he's just coming back from that long layoff. Give him time to rest. Like, Do not risk an aggravation of any injury because you're going to need him in the later rounds, and I'm with you. I don't think Portland has a chance with or without Durant. Uh, Sarah, do you think there are any adjustments that Terry Stotts can make to get them back into this? It's so tough because I, 
I don't think going small was great, but they haven't gotten much out of their bigs either, so I couldn't even say which way to go there. Um, <laughs> there are no answers. There are no answers for the Warriors. What can you yeah. do? Yeah, that's really, I mean, just the way, what, they won by almost 30 points in Game 2 without Kevin Durant. Like, this is, you know, I think with Nurkic, this could have been a fun competitive series, but without him, you know, they need a Herculean effort from both Damon and CJ and then someone else to come through. And so far, you know, Alan Crabb was the guy who we tabbed as like, maybe he could be the X factor and help swing a game. I think he had four points in game one, six points in game two. So once again, yeah, that was only our second worst prediction from the playoffs. (laughs) Uh, Bobby, is there anything you see that the Blazers could do to maybe have a prayer in this one? No, I'm I'm kind of with Sarah. I mean, it's it's just really really hard. You know, I'm I'm not sure that Nurkic would have made that big of a difference, honestly, just because Golden State is so good. I mean, Nurkic has been really good in Portland, but you can't try and go into a series against a juggernaut and hope to win every game 140 to 135. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a, it's it's a uphill battle doing that. Um, I mean, I, I am very happy that we were all blessed to see the Javale McGee game. That was yes. that was really a transcendent. <laughs> Um, that was awesome, but I mean that's just what Golden State does to you. You can you can guard one guy, but you can't guard four. And even if you guard four, then you can't guard Javale McGee. It's just it's really really tough to beat them. So unless they suddenly find the the fountain of defense, I'm just I'm not sure that they can guard them for six five more games. I mean it's it's just going to be it's going to be very difficult for them. Yeah. So we we are all pretty firmly sticking to our. Warriors prediction, at least, so that's good. Uh, Sarah, it's time to talk about your Spurs, and most notably, David Fisdale, the hero of the first round, who had just the most epic post-game game two press conference that we've had in quite some time, where he he is he goes off about the discrepancy in foul calls, and then just gets like more and more agitated as he's talking. And then slams down his papers and says, take that for data, and then just walks off, which the Grizzlies then prompted to turn into a shirt. So kudos to the Grizzlies for that. Uh, they did come back on Thursday in game three. They won it 105-94. to 94. So first, Sarah, do you think, was Fisdale justified in his aggravation about the foul discrepancy? Was, in game two, it was Spurs had 32 free throw attempts. The Grizzlies had 15. No, <laughs> um, but I understand why he did it. I'm not going to knock the hustle, but no, uh, it was nowhere near as one-sided as he, as Durant would imply. But you know, the thing is, like the issue that I had was with his argument of pain attempts. And I think we we all could probably agree that at this point it's easier to get free throws from the perimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the jump shooters are really protected now. It's like American football for our international listeners out there. American football, they, they protect their wide receivers now. They protect the quarterback. It's a lot harder to defend that kind of thing. It's very hard to contest a jump shot at this point without fouling, especially at three. Um, it, the post is like the last place on the basketball court where contact is allowed. So being that that's a big part of their offense, it's very difficult um, for them to get free throws. But you also got to look at the fact that the Spurs traditionally are not a team that fouls very often. You know, they defend without fouling pretty well. 
I was looking at uh, the team per game totals for the season. Memphis fouls a lot, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> They're at about 22.4 per game. That's second mm-hmm. most in the NBA. The Spurs were at 18.3. That's 24th most. Okay. Huh. And so if you average out their fouls for the first three games of the series, <laughs> Memphis has 66 divided by three, 22. What? Wow. <laughs> it's right on. The Spurs, 54 divided by three. 18. So they're right where they are. It, none of this came out of nowhere. It's just their biggest problem is that they have no one to guard Kawhi Leonard. James yep. Ennis grabs him every single time. Yeah, every single time. AC, he plays the what I like to call prom date defense. He's just all <laughs> over him, wrapped around him. Like, leave room for Jesus, James. Back up just a little bit. But... That's God. yeah, that's their biggest problem. And then Vince Carter's forty years old. He he actually is doing the best job he can do, but it's too much to ask. So right. that's that's the biggest problem with the fouls. And, and the worst part of it is that it has turned the entire city of Memphis into conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Now now we're getting like bi quarterly updates on how many free throws each team has shot. <laughs> it's like what the hell? Calm down, everybody. Kawhi gets hit in the face. They're like, What? <laughs> I, yeah, I did like Incredible. It was it was game three last night. Like Kawhi got mugged and he got yeah, yeah. and then they they called a foul and then crazy. and then on the other side like uh oh no Marcus all thought he got fouled and then like Marcus all whacked him in the face. And he was like what he did the little finger wag he did the matumbo yeah. to the ref. Uh-huh. That was fantastic. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we recorded the playoff preview before we knew that Tony Allen would be out indefinitely. So we thought that that would give the Grizzlies a chance against Kawhi, but. Obviously, he is not playing, and as you mentioned, Sarah, the Kawhi bot has upgraded his operating system and is now in full Terminator mode. Mort, is there anything they could do to slow down Kawhi, or do they just have to let him get 40 and hope they can slow down everyone else? Oh, they, they can, unless this uh, foul stuff that Fistial is complaining about keeps working, because here's my hot take. The Spurs would have been 3-0 and had it not been for Fistial's comments. Ooh, yeah, that is a hot take. They were right there throughout, I, you know, mm-hmm. at least throughout the first half. And then all sort of shenanigans, you know, pulled out in the third. And it, it really seemed like every time Memphis got this, got a call going their way, it just fired everyone up more than it would have <laughs> in the normal playoff series. And it was, you know, the whole us against the world mentality, which is carried over, it, it, you know, points to to Fisdale for doing his job like that's mm-hmm. that's legitimately impressive but had he not said it I think the Spurs would have been 3-0 and even with Tony Allen in the lineup um mm. <laughs> I I had them I had them you know sweeping the Grizz remember yeah so, um no but to to your to your question obviously not how do you stop a robot like like Fisdale alluded <laughs> to himself I mean Kawhi is getting what he wants when he wants when he's not picking up cheap fouls that really shouldn't go his way. That was for game three at least. That was ridiculous. Uh, just that long ball he took like at the end of the shot clock. He was I think twenty seven feet out. He just yeah. pulled up and just yeah. drained it. And he is at the very top of his game right now to the point where he controls everything on the court. And it's mm. just, it's so fascinating to watch. The whole Tim Duncan as a small forward scenario is so spot on. And I know it's kind of blasphemous comparing anyone to Tim Duncan, but <laughs> right. it's kind of good that it's another spur, right? 
But yeah. you know, I mean, who do they have? Vince Carter, <laughs> James Ennis. I mean, come on, no, no, they don't. Yeah. They have no one. Yeah, and you know, we we were worried about Tony Parker before the series started. He's looked surprisingly frisky. So that's yeah, I think that's been the big surprise. Rolled with Manu. Manu still yeah. doesn't score. Right, Manu is now the corpse. Yeah. Uh, Bobby, do you think after Game Three, after Memphis took this one, do you think this is now a series, or do you think San Antonio wins Game Four and closes this one out in five or six? I, I think this one was kind of a pride win for Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bunch of bits going on in the third quarter there, and you know the whole the whole free throw thing. But even even after the take that for data rant, which by the way was world class, <laughs> but even after that. The Spurs had eight more free throws, and they missed 12. They were 16 of 28 from the free throw line. So if they just go 22 of 28 or 23 of 20, it's a totally different game. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, Memphis is a really proud team with a lot of guys who have been in the league for like 30 years. And <laughs> right. they've been in a lot of series before. I mean, they've gone they've gone on playoff runs before. But, I mean, the Spurs are just really good. And I think this was kind of an emotional emotional win for, for the Grizzlies. We mm-hmm. see that a lot. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to rule out a winning game four, I guess. I mean, they're they're a good team at home. Um, they're a proud team at home, and their fans are insane. But, I mean, the Spurs are the Spurs, so a gentleman's sweep is is a pretty Spursy thing to do to a team like yeah. Memphis. Agreed. I, I think that is indeed the most likely outcome. But as someone who's moving to Nashville soon, let me say, I will be adopting the Grizzlies very quickly. So, Sarah, you and I are going to have a blood feud in a couple months. <laughs> okay. Uh, they do love right. their team there. Let they me really do. Yeah, they love their team. I was there. Uh, we were there at the very end of the year. This not the last game of the year the Mavs played there, but like a week before that. And the guys sitting behind me at, in the arena there, like they must have read scouting reports on each official or something. They knew their names. <laughs> they knew their history. I mean, they really do care about the officiating up there. So props to Fizz for uh, to for feeding that fire. Right. It also doesn't help that that stadium is like a block off of Beale Street, so people could just get openly wasted and then go right to that game oh it's awesome yeah it's yeah. awesome yeah everyone should go to memphis if even if they lose the series it's a fun fun city uh all right let's move on to houston okc uh houston is up 2-0 in this series with game three coming friday night here's the question so we talked about lebron earlier russell westbrook in game two had 51 points 13 assists 10 rebounds they still lost 115 to 111 more if, if they can't win, Russ has a 50-point triple-double. Does OKC have any hope in this series? Well, let's be fair. It was a somewhat inefficient 51-point triple-double, no? I think yes, he took 61 total shots if you combine free throws and field goal attempts. Yeah, so, 43 field goal attempts, 18 free throws. Right, right. And for the series, he's below 35% from the field, uh, I think 22% from downtown, something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right, 22.7 from downtown. So he's averaging 36.5 points, but the volume is ridiculous, like 66 shots in total. I mean, so so when you say uh, if you can't stop them with, with that, what are they going to do? Uh, I think you should share the ball a little bit more, like get other people involved a little bit more because that is how you actually stop Houston. Right now, Houston, who is a bad defensive team, they mm-hmm. have one guy that they need to just make inefficient and that's game over so mm. you need to spread it around you need to do more like andre robertson like okay you know props on him good on you rob because 15 and 8 per game like who saw that coming but 
Right. Where, where's Victoria Depot? Where's Doug McDermott? Yeah. Where's Taj Gibson? Where are those guys? Ennis Cantor can't even like get into the rotation anymore because mm-hmm. his his defense is abysmal. But I go back <laughs> to Bobby's point earlier. Like he does have a role because right now they just need to spread that offense out. Like they need to apply that logic. You know, let's get crazy. Like yeah, the, when Russ is best, and this is just my personal opinion, that's when he sticks around. You know, the twenty five. 28 points a game and then just let his passing do the you know do most of the talking and during game two he had so many drives to the basket that ended up being field goal attempts with Dr. Dermot standing right outside the arc wide mm-hmm. effing open like mm-hmm. that's that's just bad basketball however you slice it yeah yeah so let's talk about Ennis Cantor Bobby because you did bring him up earlier it seemed like forget who found this on Twitter first I want to say it was Jared Dubin uh, they found a clip of what looked like Billy Donovan telling an assistant coach uh, that we can't play Ennis after he gave up an easy layup in the fourth quarter of game one. So what do you think they do about Ennis Cantor? Is he playable in this series? I mean, it's really tough, man. It's it's hard for backup center to go out and guard Harden in the pick and roll. I mean, that is that is a that is a tall order. Um I mean, it's tough. Cantor's always kind of had the reputation as a guy that is much more offensive-minded than he is defensive-minded. And if you can pull him away from the basket, then you're going to get by him, and you're going to get by him pretty easily, or he's going to foul you, or he's going to you know, stumble over his feet. I mean, he's, just, he's not a very good defensive player. But he is their best finisher around the basket. It's, it's such a trade-off. Just like with Roberson, he's their best perimeter defender, but he's also their worst three-point shooter. OKC just has a lot of these guys that are like, well, they can do this, but they can't do this. So the question is, you know, if you're trying to create some offense, maybe, you know, more you just get ridiculous. Let's give Canner 35 minutes a game, and yeah. let's just try and score 150 and just run Westbrook and Canner pick and rolls and put McDermott out there at the four. Like, let's just get stupid and try <laughs> and score a ton of points, or, you know, let's – not play Cantor, let's give Adams 38, 40 minutes at center and play Grant and play Roberson and play all these defensive guys and try and get stops. It's just with their roster construction and the kind of guys that they have, you can't do one of one thing and one of the other. You can't have these defensive guys and offensive guys. you got to have five offensive players or five defensive players, which is with the way that their team is built. I just It's, it's tough to have Grant out there with Westbrook and Cantor. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. make much sense. It's not a very cohesive team. So they got to get creative. They got to get They got to get weird. Yeah, I like that plan. Uh, we need to also talk about Victor Oladipo because he is on the series 5 of 26. Yeah. So if we're talking about getting weird, Sarah, do you think it's time for Depot to go to the bench, perhaps in favor of another shooter like McBuckets? I honestly don't hate that idea. Um, I did see people saying, well, look, he's not He's not Westbrook. He can't carry a bench like that that is as poor offensively. But then again, he did come from the Orlando Magic. So I feel like, <laughs> I feel like he's got some experience with this kind of thing. So it's worth a shot. I mean, he's not going to get a lot going uh, playing next to Westbrook. It's just difficult. So why not Why not try it out? They're good. Yeah. They got to get something from him or else, right. I mean – they might be toast anyway, but they're definitely toast if they can't get help from him. So I might have yeah. an idea. Fire away. Old reversals. Like, seriously, put Oladipo in as the full-time point guard for game three and let, let Russ play off the ball, like traditional shooting guards type. 
just because then he doesn't have all the on-ball responsibilities. And Russ off the ball is a cutting monster. He is so athletic, mm-hmm. he will outrun every single defender that's put on him. And then you, you don't put Oladipo into this forced scoring role. Like, you put him on the ball, and if he has an open lane or whatever he can create for himself, like, utilize it because he's not a bad creator. He's just, he's had a, a, a tough time in OKC due to Westbrook. Not that I'm putting that at the feet of Westbrook, but just, like, how the roles have been. Put Depot at the point, and let Russ just go off ball and go batshit crazy shooting wise. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, they they have to try something. I mean, Depot is one of thirteen from three yeah. in this series, so I think the lack of three point shooting in that starting lineup is a big concern. You know, Roberson had four threes in game one, but you obviously can't count on that. He was zero of three in game two, so. That's kind of why I was pitching the McDermott into the starting lineup thing. Maybe just give him a little more spacing. But, yeah, it feels like something big's got to happen. So we will see. That game is Friday. Let's move on to the last game, or the last series, I should say. Clippers-Jazz, uh, you know, that going into the series, that looked like the closest one. Unfortunately, Rudy Gobert went down with a knee injury about, like, 15 seconds in the game one of that series. The Jazz still managed to win game one, but they lost game two. So, I mean, here's the question, Bobby. Do you think the Jazz can survive Rudy Gobert's injury? And how? what do they need to do while he's out? He's already been ruled out for game three. I think they can survive without him. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that maybe going small is a better way to beat the Clippers anyway, just because you can make Blake work on the perimeter and you can pull these guys away from the basket. And they have favors still. I mean, they have bodies that can that can go up against DeAndre. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe if guys get in foul trouble, then it just turns into a hack fest and you send DeAndre to the line 30 times. Like, I think that you can get creative and still uh, you can overcome some size disadvantages against the Clippers just with the, with the hack of stuff, with, you know, playing small, spreading the ball around. I, I don't know what's going on with Utah. I mean, they – Gordon Hayward is struggling so much against Mbamute. I think people say that it's Hayward's fault that he's he's not he's you know not playing up to the moment. But I mean, give Mbamute some credit here. That guy is unbelievable def- defensively. Mm-hmm. So if you can swing the ball around, play small, and play fast, maybe get some some switches, some mismatches on Hayward. Maybe get Hayward matchup against Blake. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how crazy they want to get, but I mean, I think that you can go small. And generate some offense that way, and still not give up too much on the other side of the ball. Yeah, I I, I like that plan too. You know, that's kind of where I was going next with that question. Is you know, Boris Diaw moved into the starting lineup game two, played 25 minutes. He was minus five. Sarah, do you think it's time for them to go small? Maybe put Joe Johnson in the starting lineup or swing Rodney Hood back in there? I would try. I would try some Joe. Yeah. The thing is, I just I feel like. Either Trey Lyles or Boris could have, you know, been big in, in swinging that with, because either of those guys theoretically could stretch the floor. But, you know, Boris has been really up and down all year, or mm-hmm. down and up, unfortunately. Uh, except for when he played the Spurs and he didn't miss a shot. Oh, right. <laughs> Good old Boris. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I would love to see one of those guys be able to do it. But barring that, yeah, give Joe Johnson a shot. I think that's that's definitely worth a look. 
And we should note he was the hero of game one, hit mm-hmm. the game-winning shot. You know, seven-time All-Star Joe Johnson coming out big. Um, more, do you think as long as Gobert is out, do you think the Clippers are going to be able to keep pounding the Jazz on the inside? To some degree. It, it frees up Derek Favors to get more responsibility on both ends, but not having a Rudy Gobert will you know, ultimately hurt you on the inside. So Utah has to accept the fact that they're going to allow more buckets on the interior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then again, that might not be a bad thing, because if you can sort of bait the Clippers into giving up the three instead and then taking a, a, a shot closer to the rim, it might actually mm-hmm. provide some sort of opportunity for him, especially if they can keep their the field goal percentage in the paint just slightly, you know, if they can just contain it to being slightly above average, I think it'll mm-hmm. even out a little bit more, and it would hurt their spacing game, and then they can go out and run. We'll, we'll see what happens, but I definitely agree with Bobby on the fact that Gordon Hayward route right now, he is he's really being hounded by Bamute, and that is one yeah. of the things that they have to figure out, because if they don't, then he's their key. Like, you, right. we can talk about Joe Johnson, we can talk about Joe Ingles, we can talk about Rodney Hood all we want, but if if Gordon Hayward is going to be consistently limited by Luke Bamute, then the Clippers are going to take this. They need to somehow find a way to free up Hayward. Like, get, some, yeah. to get, get Bamute off of him some way. If that means running him off of, like, 15 different screens every possession, then so be it, because he's their guy. He, he needs to be involved to a, a perversely high degree. Yeah, and that's another place where Gobert's absence is hurting them, much like with Nurkic in Portland. You know, he's a good screen setter, so if he's not there, it's hard for them to get as open or have as many open shots, but I'm with you both. Obviously, if Gordon Hayward is struggling, Utah is going to have a bad time, so we'll see... What happens? Fingers crossed, Gobert. It doesn't sound like, I mean, it's definitely not a long-term like ACL tear injury. It sounds like he could be back at some point in the series. His timeline is just kind of up in the air. So fingers crossed he makes it back at some point. We see what this full-strength matchup would look like. Uh, let's now move. We have a couple post-mortems to do. We did the one for Dallas a couple weeks ago, but Bobby, you write for Mavs.com, so we want to bring them back up because it's good to have an insider perspective on kind of a team in transition. You know, we Dirk Nowitzki recently came out and said he's coming back next year, which is great. We all love Dirk. We want, well, <laughs> all of us, but Sarah, I should say, love Dirk. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. Okay. <laughs> I Jesus love him more now. Look, it, it took a long time, but he's grown on me. Yeah. You have to forgive her. It's if you were tormented by a guy for a decade, mm-hmm. I think there's some <laughs> hostility there. Um, but yeah, Bobby, just just uh, tell us what do you think? Wh- what direction is this Mavericks team moving in now that Dirk is, you know, he's coming back next year, but he's definitely in the twilight of his career. Well, for me, the biggest thing about this team going into the summer, going into next season, is not so much that Dirk is coming back, but it's that like twelve or thirteen of these guys could be coming back mm. every year. Really, since they won the championship, it's been almost an entirely new starting lineup. Outside of J.J. Barea and Devin Harris, it's been entirely new bench. You're, you're constantly bringing – it's a revolving door of like eight, nine, ten new faces every season. There's no continuities. These guys spend the first month of the season getting to know each other. Uh, the year that they had that really good offense, 2014-15, they traded for Rondo. So then that was even more change, and it didn't work out. So there was even more change on top of that. I mean, it's just been, it's just been new faces all over the place. But now – 
I mean, unless they make a trade or something, you're going into next season with a, a core that's already in place. It's already played a bunch of minutes together. Dirk, Harrison Barnes, Seth Curry, Nerlens Noel, who they traded for, and, and Brian, I'm sure that you have some thoughts about that. I uh, certainly do. Yep. Yeah, that you can share <laughs> with us in a second. But, I mean, it's, it's for them it's all about youth and continuity. It's about establishing a culture, bringing guys together that fit on the floor. I mean, Curry and Barnes and Noel, all of their games complement each other really well. And mm-hmm. and that, that the Mavericks did all of this stuff on the fly during a, a pretty bleak season or what at least started out as a pretty bleak season is really impressive. I mean, you don't see teams um, totally reinvent basically their identity and their, their organizational philosophy uh, in regards to team building. You don't see them reinvent that on the fly the way the Mavs did this season. Um, and they did it pretty effectively. And that Dirk is coming back and feels good is even a bonus. I mean, it's just a cherry on top. He is uh, he's still really good, even though he's he's getting up there. He's about to turn 39. So um, but he's coming back for year 20. So it's good times. Yeah. I, you know, Morton and I, this I'd say going back to last summer, you know, we both love the Seth Curry signing. We, we've been big fans of what the Mavericks are doing. And as you mentioned, it, it is weird to see a team reinvent on the fly this quickly. You know, they. They started the year with Darren Williams and Andrew Bogut in the starting lineup, and now both of those guys ended up in Cleveland. Uh, so it's it was really impressive to see them kind of suddenly embrace a youth movement once they realized that veteran push was not giving them you know the playoff momentum they wanted. Nerlens, I do want to talk to you about. Obviously, I am still more than a little upset about that trade. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, here's the thing that gets me is. For whatever reason, you know, I I understand why they why the Sixers did it. Um, you know, I there you could gripe with it if you want to, but for whatever reason, some Sixers fans now have just done like a 180 on Nerlens and are like, oh yeah, he sucks, he's terrible. Like he's putting up <laughs> 10 points, and eight rebounds a game. What is he doing in Dallas? Good luck paying him 90 million. So can you just talk about how he fits in Dallas and whether you know his his per game out output since the trade was not like what Nurkic did in Portland, obviously. But do you think that's a, a symptom of him being limited as a player? Was it just Carlisle wanting him to earn more minutes organically? How do you see him fitting in with that long-term core in Dallas? Well, I got to be kind of honest here. I did the same 180, only reverse, I guess. <laughs> Whenever he was in Philly, I mean, Philly was just not on national TV a lot because they were sure. going through that rebuilding thing. And I didn't see Noel much except for whenever the Mavs played them. And, uh, I mean, he was hurt for a while and all that. So I didn't really know much about him. I mean, I knew he had some pretty impressive, like, per minute, uh, you know, plus minus stuff. And, you know, he was a physical freak in college. But, I mean, once you see him up close and you see him play, it's like, oh, my God, this guy's unbelievable. He just affects the game in so many ways that you don't think a center can. Mm-hmm. But there was one play that stood out right before the end of the year where he's just standing under the basket. I think they're playing Phoenix, and someone drives on the left side of the floor, and, and Noel is on the right side of the rim, and they throw a cross-court pass, and Noel reaches up, picks it off with his left hand, dribbles up the floor, down the middle of the floor on a fast break, and gives a one-handed, left-handed pass to a, a wing for a layup, like in transition. It's like, that, that guy's 6'11", he's 7 feet. Like, he shouldn't be able to make plays like that. And he just has glimpses of those plays, those kind of transcendent plays that people at his position are not normally supposed to be able to do. And I think the Mavs, if they if they re-sign him, which they've said they want to do, 
their job is going to be to pull more of those plays out of him as he continues to develop. But I mean, even if he never gets better at anything, he's already really good. He's a yeah. he can defend multiple positions. He can defend small guys. Whenever they were in Washington, he defended Beal one on one and actually like stopped him. He made him pick up his dribble. It was unbelievable. Um, and offensively, he's a role threat. I mean, he's just the the path is pretty clear for him as far as what you would want him to develop into. He's a, he's a prototypical modern NBA big, a rim rolling rim protector who can defend multiple positions, including guards. I mean, he's, he's a really, he could be a really special player. Yeah. I'm right with you. I, I still think, you know, I, I want nothing but for the, nothing but the best for him. I don't know why, because he left Philly, people are now bitter about him, but I, I'm with you. I think he really defensively, he's already elite offensively. I, you know, I don't know if he ever develops three point range, but as guys like Gobert, Whiteside, DeAndre Jordan have proven, you could still be effective even if you don't have that. And I mean, my God, it's it's just unreal that they got him for such a cheap price. So I'm still going to be very bitter about that for a while. Um, I do want to ask you, what do you see as the biggest positions of need this summer? Either the draft, I, th- I believe you guys have the ninth best odds of winning the lottery. So you assume you're probably going to get in the ninth or tenth pick. Um, and then in free agency as well. Well, things would get really interesting if they did win the lottery somehow. But I think yeah. they only have like a... 2.5% chance to get in the top three or something. So, yeah, it'll probably be the number nine pick. Um, as far as their biggest area of need, I mean, it's it's tough. It depends on several things. First, what position is Harrison Barnes going to play? Is he going to play small forward, which is his more natural position, or do they envision him as a power forward, which I believe he's more effective playing, but that obviously overlaps with Dirk's minutes. You have to bump Dirk to five, which overlaps with Noel's minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... On the other hand, do they think Seth Curry is a shooting guard or a point guard? Do they think he's a starter? I think he's a starter, um, but I think he's a better fit at shooting guard right now, mm-hmm. which means that they could they could use a point guard, basically. So in the draft, does that mean targeting a guy who can contribute right away, which maybe, I mean, uh, just based off Draft Express mocks and other mocks, Dennis Smith is a guy who could be there, who I think is a terrific player, could be. Um, or does it mean adding depth on the wing? I mean, they, mm-hmm. Barnes was good this year, but if he's playing four, you need someone to play three. Mm-hmm. Wesley Matthews played a little three. Dorian Finney-Smith played a little three. So maybe it's the wing. If Barnes plays three, then you don't need any wing help because Barnes is going to play a ton of minutes there. So maybe get a backup center. I mean, it, everything that they do this season, I think, this summer will be predicated on where Barnes will play, where Curry will play, and then once they decide that, they can go from there. But, I mean, I think the most obvious answer is they will. They could use a point guard for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw them say, you know, they really like Yogi Ferrell, but it sounds like Mark Cuban came out and said, like, yeah, you know, we like him, but probably better suited for a backup. So, as you mentioned, Dennis Smith could be there. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, it sound, seems like... His NCAA tournament run might have raised his stock to the point where he'll be in the top eight, but maybe he has an unexpected fall. He's there. Frank Natilakina is also a, a possibility if you're going point guard. So it seems like if the Mavs want to go that route, they'll have at least one of those three guys. Um, any parting thoughts about Dallas and kind of what lies ahead for them? Um, not particularly with the team, but one thing I do want to say about uh, Frank Natilakina, I don't know how many people have have seen him and it's tough to watch these guys playing overseas, but um, I'm not completely convinced that he's going to play point guard. I think he might oh. be like a, I think he might be like an off guard guy. 
Um, and I mean, just as specifically as it relates to the Mavs, like he would be a pretty ideal backcourt mate to a guy like Curry because he can defend point guards but play shooting guard on offense. So I think that could work out uh, as it relates to the Mavs. But yeah, I mean, I think I think no matter who they get at nine, it, it could be a guy that contributes uh, potentially right away and, and certainly into the future. But mm-hmm. yeah, from just from watching this team forever, this team has always had an average age of 30 plus. And now this year they got it down to like 27 and that's with Dirk, who's 38 now. Wow. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a different, it's a different time to watch a team rebuild. So this year it took a lot of patience, I think for, for fans who were watching these guys kind of figure it out, but it's pretty rewarding. Um, and I'm not trying to, I don't mean this as an insult, but as someone who's watched a lot of Philly for the last few years, like that, <laughs> right. it's gotta be, it's gotta be pretty rewarding to see these young guys turn mistakes into consistent, you know, strengths. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see them figure it out. Yeah. Definitely. I, I, you know, the Sixers are like, they're starting to get there until the end of the season where they're openly trying to lose again. But yeah, I, I think next year we'll, we'll both have some young guys to root for. Um, all right. So let's turn. We have two other lottery teams who we did not touch on last week. Denver. We need to just let's address this right off the bat. I've seen a lot of people criticizing them for the Nurkic trade Ugh. because yeah. because, you know, obviously at the time it looked like. It was defensible for both sides, but then Nurkic explodes in Portland. Mason Plumley did pretty well. He's been okay in Denver. You know, not not a world crusher like Nurkic, but not like a total bust either. The thing is, Nurkic was never hitting this level in Denver that he did in Portland. They tried it. They tried it alongside Jokic. They then moved Jokic to the bench and started Nurkic for about a month. And then they realized that didn't work. And then they put Jokic back in the starting lineup. He went off. Nurkic went to the bench. He sulked. It was just not going to happen. So I wanted to preface our Denver talk with the fact that, look, it sucks. It was, you know, it's you lost a valuable asset, yes. But I don't think he had the value at the trade deadline that he does now because he was never reaching this level in Denver. Right. All of that said, they're now in this weird purgatory. Because they have a bunch of young, promising guys like Jokic, Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Malik Beasley, Juan Hernan Gomez, even Emmanuel Moutier, depending on how you feel about him. But they also have some established veterans in Wilson Chandler, Kenneth Fareed, Will Barton, Jameer Nelson. Danilo Gallinari, is, I think he's already said he's going to opt out of his uh, or decline his player option and become an unrestricted free agent. Mason Plumlee is a restricted free agent. So Morton. Which way do you think Denver should go this summer? Or should they continue kind of towing the line between these two, the youth-centric rebuilds? Oh, God, no. The, the, the <laughs> veteran win now or just stay in the middle? Look, if the Bulls and Celtics and Knicks are any indication, and I know the Celtics are the, you know, the number one team in the East, but no, you don't play both fields at the same time it just doesn't work you have to choose a direction look at what the Mavs did I mean look the fact that that Dirk is still around doesn't really change the fact that they are going younger this is more of a loyalty factor and having him around is great for a youth program basically so you know that's great but for Denver they don't have that franchise guy who's in his late 30s they have a bunch of you know good solid veterans that, mm-hmm. that some of which have fair value, and now's the time to cash in. 
mm-hmm. yeah, they they do need some veteran leadership. But then in the summer you go out and you get like five guys who are in their mid thirties and you get them on minimum deals just to set the locker room straight. And then you tell those guys right off the bat, you're coming in here as teachers, both on the court and off the court, so you get good character guys. And you you cash in on the on all these young kids, in, not in in trades, but in getting them playing time and just rolling out a very young rotation. And even if they lose, it doesn't matter because it's building a foundation for the future. So no, I would not suggest trying to play both sides of the fence. That's it's it's something we're beginning to see in the league. It's a tendency that I think is is really destroying teams from the inside mm-hmm. and out. I mean. Because where do you go? Like you don't know. You look at Boston, for example. They, they sign Al Horford. Then they're kind of still on. Hey, maybe we should draft whoever we're going to get from the Nets pick. And then we're just going to have this youth movement as well. Like then why do you go out and spend 113 million on a 30 year old? Right. So <laughs> right, I, right. <laughs> it, it just no. I I think Denver should look at Boston and Chicago and and New York and see, okay, that didn't go as planned, so we should avoid that. Mm-hmm. But you could also turn around and say, we have all these young, you know, young guys, we have some picks, whatever. We could try to cash in, re-sign Gallo, and then see how far we could go. But I just, I wouldn't do that if I was them. I would do that if I had a franchise player. Right. Like, if Which you know, they, yeah. they probably do in Jokic, but he's just too young to, exactly. like, he's not going to win a playoff series on right. his own yet. Right. He's probably two or three years away from being that top guy. Yeah. So that that's why it doesn't really make a whole bunch of sense to go that route right now. But, I mean, last year they went after Dwayne Wade, remember? So right. They do want yeah. some sort of instant gratification, I think. And that's right. kind of worrisome. So I would definitely lean on the side of uh, patience. Yeah. Do you, I mean, you brought up Boston, you know, there was a report in the New York Post today that they might trade for Carmelo Anthony this summer if they lose in the first round. So it's that kind of thing. It's like, well, you've got all these young guys, but you're also good. You know, as you mentioned, you sign 30 year old Al Horford for 4 million or for $110 million. You're going to, you're going to trade for Carmelo Anthony. It, but Hey, let's note Denver has the ammo. Maybe they're going to have a reunion with Carmelo next year. They, how fun would that be? I if mean, they... <laughs> they did go after Wade, so they're in on the yeah. whole banana boat thing. Why not? Right. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, how are you feeling about Emmanuel Moutier? He is halfway through his rookie contract. Uh, after the All-Star break, he got not only benched, but demoted to the third string behind both uh, Jameer Nelson and Jamal Murray, which Mike Malone called, I think, the hardest decision of his career. So how, how do you feel about him moving forward? Oh my God, your face says it all, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking up numbers on him because, yeah, I think he's their biggest question mark, honestly. I mean, their team defense overall was not great this year, but right. um, personnel-wise, yeah, it's a big summer for him. Um, it's, you know, J- Jamal Murray kind of took over that. They, they started grooming him to be the point guard, uh, and he did well. Uh, Moutier... In his second season, he played uh, slightly fewer minutes, but his per 36 numbers are basically hovering right around his rookie numbers, slightly better in some areas. Um, definitely not, you know, the improvement that you'd like to see. But and and while I'm at it, like I was in a discussion about uh, player development yesterday too, 
So I don't want to put it all on Moutier. Um, mm. You know, I, I don't know what their development staff is doing with him, but it's a big summer for all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. They got to have him in the gym, and, and you'd like to see some appreciable improvement next year. But if not, yeah, it's it's not looking good for the future, and they, they might have to look elsewhere. And like I said, they've already been grooming Jamal. Uh, he looks good. They've, they've got Hernan Gomez and Jokic, so they have some some good pieces for the future, but he's the biggest question mark. Um, the shooting numbers are still pretty abysmal. Um, love to see him remake that shot a little bit and improve it. Um, learn to play the point guard position a little better and set up the teammate. You know, there, this, there was nothing for him to hang his hat on, really. And he's got to find at least one area for next season. Yeah. Also, I think it was early in the season where he was just turning the ball over like five or six times a game. And Mike Malone was like, he's actually killing me. Like, <laughs> just we cannot have that many turnovers. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he definitely fell out of favor. I think you're right to bring up Jamal Murray because they did play him predominantly. You know, Nelson was hurt at the end of the year. They played Murray as their starting point guard for the last few games. And they did do pretty well in that role. And you have Jokic, too, who's, you know, a triple-double threat every time he walks onto the court. So you don't even need a traditional point guard. You don't need a Chris Paul type. You just need a guy, frankly, who can shoot, which Moutier at the moment cannot. Uh, Bobby, how scared are you of Denver? Because they're, you know, if they go the youth route, they're going to be on kind of the same developmental timeline as Dallas. After they made that Nurkic trade, well, I, I guess I should say, their last game playing the way that they used to play was against the Mavs. It was in December, and they came to Dallas, and the Mavs ran them out of the gym like in the first quarter. I think mm-hmm. they ended up winning the game by like 30 points, and it was the next day or two days after that game that Malone said, all right, screw it, we're going to start playing you know, Jokic ball here. Um, <laughs> they got so many young, good guys, like – it's it's easy. Denver's one of those teams that's not on national TV a lot easier either. Mm-hmm. So if you if you don't watch them, if you don't keep up with them, you can forget about guys like Gary Harris, who came in the league a few years ago, kind of was just a dude for his first two years, and then this season was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he he is like what you would hope Seth Curry could turn into if you're watching the Mavs. Those two guys are very comparable. They have very comparable games. Harris is like a legit player. Jamal Murray came on really strong. And both of those guys are, I think, perfect compliments for, for Jokic because they're off-ball movers. They can catch and shoot. They can cut. They can run. They can, you know, they don't really need the ball in their hands to make a play, but they can make plays if the ball is in their hands. So, like, that's such a good compliment core, uh, a complimentary core. They just need a couple wings. So I'm not sure that they need to give up on Chandler or Gallinari. Like, I don't think they're really taking minutes away from anyone uh, except for Aaron and Gomez, maybe. But Chandler, I mean, is a, a still a very good defender. He's still a pretty good shooter. He can make plays. He can rebound. I mean, that's a, they're a really good team. Like, I think they could compete for, for a playoff spot next season, um, assuming there's not some huge drop-off offensively. I mean, they were just – they were historic offensively, really, after making that trade. And if they can stay at that level, then, I mean, dang, they could, they could win 40, 45 games next year pretty easily, I think. Yeah, I'm with you, and, and I, it's a good point to bring up about you know Chandler and Gallo not taking minutes. Like that is their one hole in terms of their young prospect. They don't have that traditional wing guy. They've got a bunch of shooting guards and point guards, and then they have the bigs, but they don't have that one like 
elite 21 year old wing. So if they add that somehow, you know, I think they're what the 13th or 14th pick in the draft. So that it's probably not going to happen through there, but maybe they're a sneaky spot for Gordon Hayward. Who knows? Or um, trade up like they have the assets. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, you know, who'd who, be good if they, if they lose Gallo. Robert Covington, pry him go, away from go Philly. Away. Go away, Sarah. <laughs> we're, we're moving on. I'm not having any of this. You, you, you stay away from Robert Covington, everyone. He's resounding in Philly. Well, just, you know, if you go the draft route and you trade up, Josh Jackson would just fit the oh. love into that system. Yeah, that would be fun. Because he's not the best shooter, but you, he would have shooters around him. So right. he would still have the ability to create. He could run the court a whole lot. It would be spread out for him. I, I would kind of take that. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, keep an eye on Denver this summer, everyone. I know, as Bobby said, they're not on national TV all that much, but those who were watching them, they're legit. They're going to be a fun team for the next couple of years. Uh, so let's move on to the other team that did not make it to the playoffs, the Miami Heat. They started the season 11-30. and 30. They finished the season on a 30-11 run. They missed out on the playoffs only because they lost the tiebreaker to the Bulls. Early on in the season, they tried to force-feed their offense through Hassan Whiteside. But then, after going 11-30, and 30, they kind of turned it more over to Goran Dragic. Deion Waiters came on. They were more of a driving kick offense. James Johnson, who we talked about, I think, an episode or two ago when we were discussing our six-man-of-the-year candidates, he was phenomenal, too. Uh, you know, they, they have some interesting pieces. Chris Bosch, Pat Riley gave a press conference the other day. He said that situation is yet to be resolved, but it sounds like in all likelihood he's going to come off their books. His $25 million contract is going to come off their books. So they're, they could have upwards, I mean, clearly enough for one max contract and then some. So more, James Johnson and Dion Waiters are both, I mean, they're going to be unrestricted free agents this summer. Dion has a player option that he's, he would be insane not to turn down. Right. So how hard do you think Miami should try to keep both guys? Well, that depends on what they demand and, and what the competition is like out there on the market. Like, if, if Dion Waiters at $23, $24 million a year, no thank you. I'm mean, <laughs> not going to do that because, yeah, he, he played well, but I have this suspicion that it was one of those perfect time perfect play scenarios and if you prolong that experiment it it has a high potential of just cracking beneath your feet so mm-hmm. i wouldn't really give up a whole bunch of, of of money to him like maybe a two-year deal worth 15 a year yeah i would do that mm-hmm. um james johnson on the other hand like he's i think he's 30 right now yep. so mm-hmm. it's, it, his prime is is not going to last a whole a whole lot longer so a similar deal, I suppose, two years, a two-year deal, whatever that is going to take, like maybe 12 to 15 million area, something like that. But I'm not going to break the bank for either. Like this this was a magical second half to the season. That's amazing, but it's still just a 41-game sample. So right. you, you shouldn't really build your entire future off of that 41-game sample. <laughs> like the right. first 40, 41 games still happened. Yes, Right, exactly. That's a fair way to put it. So, yeah. So, Sarah, as I mentioned, right now with Bosch's contract on the books, they have close to, it looks like, $95 million. So they'll have enough room for a max contract win 
once they resolve that. And Wayne Ellington is not guaranteed. Dion's going to opt out. So they're going to have probably close to 35 to 40 million in cap space this summer. Do you think Miami, with Pat Riley's little drop the rings presentation, are they going to be a sneaky player in free agency? It could be. I. I mean, I'm sure he wants to go get a star. Of course, I was thinking of uh, just saying that. I thought about Magic saying the Lakers have always had a star. So mm-hmm. I don't know that they'll be as uh, as aggressive about it, but I'm sure they're going to look. But I just kind of, as Morton was saying, I don't think they're at the point where they need to commit long-term or a lot of money to anybody. They're kind of mm-hmm. not at that place right now. Um, see if you can hit it big on some some smaller contracts to some question mark guys like Dion Waiters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's no reason to to buy big at the moment. I like uh, Goron. I like. I'm still on the Justice Winslow train. I've been oh, there yeah. since. Yeah. Yep. Since, well, I, I saw him in the beginning of the preseason and I thought he's going to shoot better this year. I saw his form; <laughs> it looks pretty good. Uh, didn't happen, and he got the wrist injury, but. But I still think he brings a lot of value, and I'm hoping next year I'm going to see what I what I thought I was going to see this year. So, yeah, they still got some good pieces, and I think they should keep going the way they've been going. Yeah, I like that plan. Um, Bobby, what do you think their biggest positions of need are? Uh, we'll assume that Dion and James Johnson opt out, but you know, they, including their uncertain status, I should say. What do you think they're Biggest positions in need are this summer, both in the draft and free agency. I'd be curious to see what they can do when healthy. They only got like 20 games of Justice Winslow, like Sarah was talking about. They only got, I think, like 50 games of Josh Richardson, who had a great year the year before. Yep. So, I mean, those guys play guard. They can play wing. Uh, so if, if you know, Deion Waiters does leave in free agency, then they could be potential replacements for him, um, mm-hmm. unless they obviously go the big fish route. Um but yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to see what they do if they just bring the whole group back together. I think just given their their roster makeup after the first 41 games, they had a lot of guys healthy. Uh, Deion Waiters missed the last few games of the year, but otherwise he missed a ton of games the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when they were healthy, they were really good. Um, they were really good. I mean, the 60-win pace. So, I mean, I'd be curious, and I'm removed from the situation, obviously, being in Dallas. But so for me, I'm just like a casual observer. And, I mean, it's like a fun little experiment. I mean, this was like a – this is a pretty anonymous team. I mean, Hassan Whiteside is, is really good. Goran Dragic is really good. But they just have a bunch of dudes like Tyler Johnson, James Johnson, Roddy Magruder. Like these are guys with borderline fake names who are playing great <laughs> basketball. And they won a ton of games. And they they play a really unselfish style that's really fun to watch. So, like, I almost don't want them to change too much because I want to see if they can – repeat what they did i mean they were they were legitimately good for half a season and um not many teams can accidentally win 30 out of 41 games so i, I think there's <laughs> right. something there there's something there that's legit for sure yeah i mean the the reason i'm asking this question is because this is the last year tyler johnson's making 5.9 million this coming season he jumps to about 18.9 the following year so it feels like if they're going to make a move, whether that is just to retain Dion and James Johnson for a couple more years or land the big fish, it feels like they've got to make that play this summer rather than push that decision off a year. But to Mort's point, like, yeah, if you could just bring the whole band back, you know, sign Dion and James Johnson 
don't lock into them for four-year deals if they want 20 million or even 15 million per year but if you can lock into them for two-year deals why the why the hell not right like you've got you only have four players on the books after next season you have Whiteside, Dragic, Tyler Johnson, Justice Winslow, Josh Richardson's a restricted free agent in 2018 got a bunch of guys coming off the books this year it, it feels like it's it's a team very much in flux. Like I could see them going either way, but yeah, I, I'm a fan of bringing the band back and seeing what they could do when healthy. As you mentioned, Richardson was a stud late in the year. Like he's he's turned into that like that sneaky, you know how D Wade was like one of the best shot blocking shooting guards. Josh Richardson has just taken up that role in Miami. Like he he is good for at least a block per game, and I say that because I was writing fantasy columns at the end of the year, and everything I was writing was like, if you need blocks, pick up Josh Richardson. Like The dude is just guaranteed to get at least a block a game. So uh, it could be fun to see them roll it back. Any final thoughts on the, the Heat, guys, before we wrap it up? I have a question. I guess I'll, I'll open the floor for anyone to answer. Um, if Miami would have made the eight seed, what do you think they would have – what kind of series do you think they would have given Boston? Ooh. Question. I I don't think Boston would be down 2-0. I, I think one and one sounds somewhat fair because mm-hmm. they they were playing well and also their rebounding issues would just be that that <laughs> much harder to overcome or, or compensate against when when uh, Hassan Whiteside is in there. So it, yeah. it could actually have been two and zero Miami when you when I really dig in and think about it. Mm-hmm. But my my. When I, I keep thinking about Jimmy Butler, like that was really the, mm-hmm. the main issue there because the first game, like Jimmy just took over and Jimmy Butler it all over the Celtics. So, <laughs> and and they don't Miami doesn't have that one wing who can just yeah. continuously create something for himself. And also, yeah, they have Dragic, but he's still like a he he, he doesn't have the greatest size, and I think size and. and you know, if you have size and you have the ability to create your own shot in the playoffs, that just becomes even more important. Mm-hmm. So it feels it's, a, it's an interesting question for sure. Yeah, it feels like I'm with you, Mort. I think it would have been one-one because it feels like there there are more places to hide Isaiah Thomas on defense against Miami than there are against Chicago. But that said, we're gonna have to see what happens now that Rondo's out. You know, Rondo was playing really well those first two games, and now you know maybe. Yeah, playoff Rondo was the thing. <laughs> Something that Bobby could not relate to as a Dallas fan. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, now now that Jerry and Grant is subbing in for him, well, you know, maybe you hide Isaiah on him and maybe that swings the series. But that's a good question, Bobby. I, I, I think regardless, that Miami team, they're not far off from being a playoff squad as they showed. Like, I don't think they're as bad as they were at the 11 and 30 stretch. I don't think they're as good as they are in the 30 and 11, but I think they're in that like 45 win range overall. Like I, which, you know, math added up and that's basically where they finished. But it feels like they're not, you know, they're not the Knicks. I don't think if you bring, roll it back, they're going to just totally implode. Yeah. That seems bad. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So let's let's wrap things up there. I uh, want to extend another thank you to Bobby Carella of Mavs.com for joining us. Um, reminder that you can follow all of us on Twitter at the NBA pod. All three of our 
Twitter handles are in the bio. Bobby, can you tell people where to follow you on Twitter? Yeah, it's uh, Bobby Carella. It's B-O-B-B-Y-K-A-R-A-L-L-A. It's all Mavs all the time. I'm a big, big Mavs nerd. So give me a follow. There you go. And follow Bobby's work on Mavs.com as well. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. I, I, had, a, I had fun with you guys. Good, yeah. Hey, you're, you. you're welcome back anytime. Uh, just reminder, everyone, you can also follow us on iTunes. I would love it if you subscribe, download, left some reviews, uh, and then check out FanRag Sports, our host for the year, at FanRag Sports on Twitter and at FanRagNBA for their NBA content. Until next time, I'm Brian Tapork, and I was joined by Bobby Carella, Morton Jensen, and Sarah Chalea. Have a good one, you guys. Enjoy the rest of the playoffs this week. Likewise, Bri. Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles. Now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729-811. Select styles. Excludes in-store Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.